The book of 1 John, that's where we are today. While you're turning there, I want to wish you a hearty good morning. Yeah, come on. Yeah, I know, it wasn't the first thing, so you weren't ready for it. I'm just trying to mix things up a little. Um, good morning to you. Glad you're here. And uh, we are plugging through the... The book of First John, it's towards the end of your Bible, um, and so if you want to actually start at the back and work your way the other way, that'll probably help you get there quicker. First uh, John is where we find ourselves, and we're in chapter, the end of chapter 2 through chapter 3, verse 10. So chapter 2, verses 28 through chapter 3, verse 10. That's what we're studying today. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one on a row near you. And because we do believe the Bible is God's precious Word to us, the way that we, uh, He has revealed Himself to us, we're really going to kind of stay in it and look at it a lot. So we encourage you to not only look at one, but to keep it open. If you don't own a Bible, we have one in the coffee room that we would love to give to you. So after this is over, you can go and snag one of those. But today we find ourselves in 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 through chapter 3, verse 10, and I will read it and then say a brief help us God prayer, and we'll dive right in, okay? Let's look at the Word of God together. First John chapter 2, verse 28, the Word of God reads this way. And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. See? See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it didn't know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we will be like Him. Because we will see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this, it is evident. Who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let me pray. Father, we ask 
in this very moment to take Your Word and root it deep into our hearts. Would You protect us from making this say what it doesn't and to have the heart to embrace the truth of what it says. So speak to us now, gently yet powerfully, so that we see you better and clearer than we've ever seen you. Have your way with us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Evidence. Evidence is meant to reveal that something exists, that something is true. Especially as popular as courtroom dramas and murder mysteries are on today's TV, evidence is probably as familiar to uh, us as almost in any day where you don't have to necessarily work in a courtroom to understand the, the nature of evidence, how it can prove either guilt or innocence. Evidence works to expose and to verify a truth. So when you see a hearse driving down the road with a line of cars behind it, on the hearse you see the sign that says funeral, and when you look at the people in the cars, they're dressed in black and they're wiping tears from their eyes, then that gives evidence that a death has occurred. In a little bit more, maybe light-hearted way, there are other things that give evidence. A person goes to a concert and they pay astronomical amounts of money to be on the front row. And on the front row, they're wearing the t-shirt of their favorite artist. And they have their hands thrown up in the air and they're hoarse because they're yelling so much. Some might even have tears flowing down their face because of their adoration for this artist. These might give evidence that this person really loves this band or this musician. What about when you're sitting at a meal, right? You're sitting at a meal and you catch yourself or someone else, let's just say someone else to protect you, and you're looking at the food and you don't even look up. You're just going like this. Mmm. Mmm. Just these crazy groans. Mmm. Mmm. And, and you're not talking to anybody. You're just consuming. You're just consuming. Those groans, your focus, they might give evidence that you loved the meal, right? What about if you got like a toothpick and you see somebody after the meal going like this right here and you know they're running their tongue all through their teeth, probably give evidence that something's all stuck up in there, right? There's a sense that things give evidence to something else. Well, John wants it to be really clear as he ends this passage that there are ways, there are evidences that verify God's saving work is happening, that His love has invaded the human heart. He says in verse 10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. There's a way to know. There's verification. There are things to observe that give evidence that God has gripped a heart and that His love 
is residing in a person. And so we want to look at those four evidences today. There are others, but the ones that come out of this passage today are that one in whom God's saving love, His, His amazing love is at work, is a person who is abiding in God. Two, pursuing what is right. Three, wondering, not questioning, but standing in awe of His love and hoping forward. Not setting our hopes on the here and now, but on seeing Him face to face. These are evidences of God's saving work. Evidences that His love has invaded the heart. So let's look at it together. And the first one we come to, we see in verse 28. And He says this, And now, little children, abide in Him. Abide in Him. Little children... John is speaking as a spiritual father, as a mentor, as one who's walked many years and now lovingly looks at the church and he says to all the believers, child. And he does it not because just because he sees himself as a spiritual father, but we'll even see it later, because that's what God calls us. Anyone who is a follower of Jesus is called a child. And so he says, little children abide in Christ. Abide in Him. Abide in Him. Now, John has been telling us throughout this letter why in the world he's written this thing. Chapter 2, verse 1 says this, And you'll hear a similar phrase. My little children, church, I'm writing these things to you so that you do not sin. And then he goes on to say, chapter 2, verse 26, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And so what he is doing is he is acknowledging that though children, though followers of Jesus, there is attack from within and attack from without. And I'm writing these things to you so that you're on the alert. So that your spiritual antennas are up. I'm writing these things to you because you have in your heart a leaning, a propensity. Even though Christ has come in and dwells within you, you are being tempted to sin. And I'm writing these things to you so that if you do sin, you know you have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's wanting to give us hope. That Christ is greater than our sin. But not only that, but this church has dwelling all in it deceivers. Now, he writes this letter as if the majority of the people he's addressing are believers. But there is a minority, there is a small group of those who are making big waves. And that's kind of how it works. You've heard the squeaky wheel gets the grease kind of thing, right? In this sense, many times there's this vocal minority that are dissenters. Makes everybody feel like everybody's dissenting, but that's not how it's working. But you have them that are vocal and it's tempted to pull the faithful away. And they are questioning their own faith and losing confidence. And they are wondering really what truth is. And the deceivers are saying, 
You can deny that Jesus is God Himself. You can separate the Son from the Father and not consider them one. And you can also live in a way kind of contrary to what Jesus lays out and still be in fellowship with the church. They keep giving this message and it's causing all of these doubts to come into the mind of the church. There is a spiritual attack from within, but also from without. And John goes so strong to say that these deceivers, they're not to be treated casually. He says they are in and of themselves, they are an embodiment in some sense of the devil himself. They are, as it says in verse 18 of chapter 2, there have been many antichrists that have come now. Those who have as their intent deception. Who is the father of deceit? The devil. And as deception begins and disunity, disarray and disorder come, It is an evidence that their father is not God, but the devil. And so John writes this, and he's saying, how do you protect yourself? How do you protect yourself from the sin that's kind of pulling you to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride of possessions? How do you protect yourself? How do you have a sense of confidence and not fear? That's what we talked about last week. God wants for His people, you to be confidently alert, not confidently In terror. Those would be an antithesis. There's a sense of confidence yet alert that the devil is on the prowl. He is attacking. How in the world do you get this sense of confidence and sharpness? He says, now little children, abide in Christ. Dwell there. Rest there in Christ. Now, Jesus says something very similar in Matthew 11.28. He says this, Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden. This is a spiritual burden. And Jesus promises, if you come to me, I will give you rest. Two verses later, he says, that's a rest for your soul. We're not just talking about physical rest. We're talking about a deeper rest, a peace, a rest. And it comes from coming to him and what John says, abiding in him. Now, some of you today, after this time, you're going to go home. And some of you are big sports fans. You're going to turn on the TV and you're going to watch, try to watch NFL. And you might have a favorite team. That's not the Panthers. Shame on you if it's not, but that's not the point. Because they're easy to find on the TV. But some of you might want to see if your team is playing on TV. And so you'll go and you're just like, okay, where is it? Especially if you don't have cable or, you know, DirecTV's NFL Sunday ticket, which makes this analogy or illustration almost pointless because you have every game. But when you sit down and you're like, where is the game? Am I going to be able to find it? And then after all this searching, you find the game and then you turn it off and say, whew, I got it. That was good. I found it. You would say that was dumb. Because your aim was to watch the game, not just find where it was on the TV. Similarly, the call is not just to come to Jesus, high-five Him and leave. It's to sit and to dwell. 
When you take a trip to the beach, let's say not just a one-day kind of hour-long excursion, but you're driving four to five, six hours maybe to get to the beach. When you do that, how ludicrous would it be to say, look, I see the ocean, and then you turn around and leave. You've just driven all this time. Why would you drive all that time? It's because you love to sit there and to enjoy the ocean, to play in the sand, to build castles, to enjoy fellowship out there. And John is saying, little children, the greatest protection you can have from the evil one and the sin that rages in your heart is just to rest with me. To abide in me. To sit and to dwell with me. We make this Christian thing so much more complicated. And then miss what is supposed to be primary. And that is to sit and to dwell with our God. Sometimes I wish that one, I would come here and I would stand up on a Sunday and I would read the text and then I would say, I didn't prepare anything. Now what are we going to do? And you would look at me like, that's your job, buddy. Get with the program. What do you mean you did? Surely you're joking. No. I don't have anything prepared. What do we do now? Would the people of God be ready? Would we be ready to preach to one another? Would we be ready to speak truth to one another? And then I'll tell you this. The other thing is I wish every one of you would preach in some ways. That was a laughter. He does, this guy down here doesn't trust every one of you. But I tell you this. When you believe it is your responsibility to handle rightly the Word of God and to communicate it clearly to the people of God, that will force you to abide with God in ways you've never done it before. And what I want to put forward to you is this. It's not a job. And it shouldn't be heightened because it is a job. It's what Christians do. I can't tell you. Being forced to think about what this says and being forced to try to communicate it to others in a clear way is one of the healthiest disciplines you could ever have. To come knowing you're going to study a passage in community groups and just to come saying, I've looked at this passage and God has met me and I've got something to give to you. Or to come in this morning and just be on the alert that God has been meeting with you throughout the week and you've got something to share with somebody else. Many times you don't text words of encouragement or you struggle to benefit from words of encouragement because we're not abiding with Christ. When we're with Him, we have ammunition to love and we're encouraged when we receive love from others. John says, you want to fight this battle? You want to be confident? You want to be alert? Dwell with your Savior. Sit at His feet. And here are some verses that struck me that I thought would be helpful. Last week I talked about the dangers of the devil and I only gave half of the verses. Meaning, I only gave the portion of the verse that talked about how vile and evil and aggressive the devil was. But I want to give you both sides of the story. 
John 10, verses 10 through 11, it says this of the devil, the thief, that's him, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. His aim is to devour. But Jesus says this right afterwards, but I came that you may have life and have it to the full. What do you do? You set them in contrast to each other. Why did Jesus say this right after He said this about the devil? To show that one comes to kill non-life and one comes to give life and give abundant life. One comes to cut life short and diminish it. The other one comes to blossom it and make it flourish. And you sit there and you look at that. And you see that these promises are for you. He says, I'm the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. One takes life. One gives his own life that there might be abundant life. And there's a sense of meditation and dwelling on this passage. I want to give you one more and then I'll tell you why. 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5. He says, resist the devil. For he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It says in verse 9, resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And he goes on and he says this. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, He will Himself... He's going to do something. He's going to restore. He's going to confirm. He's going to strengthen. And He's going to establish you. Where you thought the devil had dominion, it says no. To Him be the dominion forever and ever and ever. Amen. The devil wants you to focus on your sin and on your inability and on your failures and what the Scriptures constantly point to. If you abide in them and abide in Him, they point to future grace. They point to God's promise to constantly be with you and help you. And if you aren't abiding in the text, you'll forget those things. And you'll set your hope in the here and now. And you'll feel like all future is kind of left on your shoulders. And yet these promises, they fuel you. I've got a God who promises to restore me even in the midst of, of sorrow and sin. I've got a, a God who promises that when I'm weak, He will be my strength. I can't tell you how hard I pray between services. I feel most weak for this sermon every single week. And I have to pray like crazy. God, I'm weak. You be strong. Where do I get that? Do I just make it up? 1 Peter 5. He will establish you. He will restore you. He will uphold you. So John says, little children, when you're under attack, don't try to run this on your own. Draw near to God. Draw near to Him. Abide in Him. Dwell there. Don't just high-five Him and leave. Spend time with Him. Why? Because it says, so that when He appears, verse 28, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. Do you hear that? He wants us as the church to be confident. To be confident. Because there is coming a day. No doubt. You can deny it all you want to, but when it happens, no denying it. There is coming a day, a fixed day, that God says, Jesus Christ will come again to judge the world. And there will be a group of confident people 
and a group who shrink back in shame. And he's saying, I want you to be the confident ones. I want you to be able to look at Jesus and to be confident. And you might think, well, how do I do that? Because I sin. And that's why he follows it up with what he says. Because if you know that God is righteous, there's your guarantee. There's your guarantee. He says, if you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. What is your guarantee of confidence on that last day? Is it, look at what I have done. Is that it? Is that what we have to give Him? The confidence of the Christian is in the righteousness of another. That's why he says, that's why he says this. Jeremiah 23, 5-6. And talking of the coming Messiah, that is Jesus Christ, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he will reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell secure. That's a picture of the people of God dwelling securely. And the question is, how will they dwell secure? How will they stand confident? Answer? Because the name of the Messiah is this. The Lord is our righteousness. We will stand confident on that day because Jesus is our righteousness. Not because we've got something to give Him. And so on that day, the beauty of that day is that we stand there in and of ourselves naked and sinful, but in Christ clothed, redeemed, rescued, and changed because Jesus is our righteousness. That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says. For our sake. Because God looked at us and realized we could not save ourselves. And He looks down and what does He do for that plight? For our sake... He gave His Son up. And He put our sin upon Jesus. It says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who didn't know sin at all. Sinless. That's Jesus. Why did He do it? So that in Christ, by trusting, believing that Christ alone can take away your sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin imputed to Him, His righteousness and right standing and perfection given to us. The only way you are accepted on that last day is if you stand righteous. And if you try to do it on, the, on your own, you will fail. And you will live a miserable life trying to measure up because you'll never know what's enough. And you'll constantly beat yourself up because you've never been enough. And yet He says, there's another way to live. There's another way to dwell secure. And it's by abiding in Christ and looking at the Savior and believing that He is your righteousness. And you stand upon Him and Him alone, securely. And so, friends, He will come again. First time He came to deal with sin. The second time He comes to save all those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Hebrews 9 says...
And so where is your security? It's in abiding in Christ. Abiding in Him. And when you abide in Him, you'll begin to look like Him. So the second evidence is that you begin to not only abide in Him, but you pursue what is right. You pursue what is right. That's why He says in verse 29, if you know that Jesus is the righteous one, then you can stand confident. He says, you may be sure, confident language, that everyone who practices righteousness, and if any right living begins to come out of the life, it is an evidence that they have been invaded by God. It's an evidence that God has made them alive. They have been born anew. The heart has been set ablaze. Desires are different. This is what happens when Jesus comes in and His love takes over. When His love takes over, you begin to live like He lived. You will not be able to be perfect until you see Him face to face. But you will grow to look more like Him. We walk in the light as He is in the light. We live in righteous ways because our Father is righteous and we're dwelling near to Him. And so, John then, in chapter 3, verse 1, does something. It's basically an emotional eruption. And he does in chapter 3, verse 1, he just says, Behold! Good night! Look at this! Look at this! The kind of love that God would have for sinners like me, that we would, we would not be treated as enemies, but we would be brought in as children, accepted, heirs of everything that's His. Look at this! And one day we're going to see Him. And when we see Him, we'll be made completely new. We'll be made like Him. That's our hope. And He says, look, behold, that is an outstanding love. That He would give His own Son to die for sinners. Look at this! But we're not going to go there right now. We'll actually go there later. Because what He does is He jumps back into the same subject that we started with. Look at verse 4. He connects verses 29 and verse 4 with this idea of everyone practicing sin, everyone practicing righteousness, you see the connection. But what he's done in chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, is this kind of eruption, this sense of emotional excitement over God's love gripping his heart. But before we get there, we must see that the people of God not only abide in Christ, but they pursue what is right. What is righteous. And when you live a righteous life, it is giving evidence that God has invaded the heart. Because you can't do that on your own. When you love someone genuinely, it's an evidence that God has come in. When you want to spend time with God, it's an evidence that God has come in. When you consider others better than yourself, it's an evidence that God has come in. And he's saying these are evidences. When you pursue what is right. Look at verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Because sin is lawlessness. God has given parameters. He has set up commands. We know them as the law of Christ. And He has given them to us that we might obey them. And they are for our good. And they hem us in to the correct path of love and joy. 
And yet some of us want to buck against that. And we want to rule our own universe. We want to rule our own ways. Thinking this whole time that we are out from underneath any commander. But that's just not how it works. You're actually under the command of sin. You're under the command of the devil. You're always being commanded and you're always submitting to something. And here, he's saying that when you submit to sin, you're submitting to the devil. You're submitting to lawlessness. Because sin is lawlessness. And then he says in verse 5, And don't you know that... Jesus appeared to take away sin. That's why He came. And in Him there is no sin. So, He can deal with sin because He was sinless. Sin is lawlessness, and you're tempted here. But look, church, Jesus has come, and He's sinless. And so, rather than you being sinful, abide in Him, He's going to take care of you. He's conquered sin. He's more powerful than the evil one. He's wanting to hold up that you don't have to live in sin. It's not something that you are having to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says, He'll provide you a way of escape when you are tempted to sin. And so he says, verse 6, No one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. What do you do with that? Because I know you and I know me. Every one of you have come in here sinners, and every one of you will sin. And it says here, no one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. And no one keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. He's holding up what He's been holding up the entire letter. Not the Christian, if they really love Jesus, will be perfect. But the Christian, when sin comes up before their eyes, it will stand as an alert. The alarm system goes off. And rather than running deeper into sin, they will turn away from sin and press deeper into God. That's why He says... No one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. That means sin comes up. And what do you do with sin? 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 tell us. I'm writing this to you, church, so that you don't sin. But if you do sin, hear this. You have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who stands in your defense, who stood in your defense, taking the wrath that your sin deserved. That happened because you are about to fall asleep. And 
God wanted you to kind of be reinvigorated with the word. Um, I'm sorry, Ben took it. Um, Ben, he has the batteries. So I'll just have a tail until they return. This is why it's really good that we have video editors. We can just knock all this mess out of there. Okay. The scriptures say in 1 John chapter 2, let's just hold off. He's coming back with batteries. Talk amongst yourselves. Test. Sorry about that. The microphone smack, that is. Okay. Let's begin again, shall we? First John chapter 2. I want to read it because this is the only way you'll be able to understand chapter 3. He says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, there's an assumption that Christians will sin. But the question is, where do you go when you sin? And he says, you have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who stood in your place and took the punishment that you deserve. So now flip back over to 1 John chapter 3. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. That means no one continues to licentiously live in sin. When sin becomes up before their eyes, they will then begin to hate it and they will fight against it. They will not win that fight all the time, but there will be a fight. They will desire and press in deeper to abide in Christ. And so he says, verse 7, Little children... Let no one deceive you because they're saying something opposite of what John just told them. It's basically a litmus test. He's saying whoever practices righteousness is righteous. There's evidence in the way a Christian lives. They look like Jesus. Not perfectly. But they have different desires. They talk differently. They're generous with their money and their time. They love. They want to sit at the feet of Jesus and spend time with Him. Those who practice righteousness, they're followers of Jesus because He is righteous. Verse 8 says, But whoever makes the practice of sinning, they're of the devil. There's a contrast. Remember verse 10. By this it's evident. Who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. If you are not fighting against sin, if you are not walking in the ways of Christ, you should not be confident that you're His. But if when the alarm bell goes off that you are diving into sin, and you don't press deeper into it, but that you fight it, and that you invite others in for help, and you begin to run towards Jesus... You can be secure because you have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is your righteousness. You're not your own. And so we have to bring the whole message together. And he says in verse, end of verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So when you are tempted to give in to the devil, 
You have to understand, greater is He that is in you, Jesus, than the one that's in the world, that's the devil. And what he desires, God will uproot and turn for good. That is, when the devil designs to crush your faith, God uses it to build your faith. When the devil designs to discourage you, God will use it to show you how strong He is in the midst of your discouragement and press you to lean deeper and deeper into Him. And that's what the cross proved. What the devil desires to use to destroy, Jesus takes and designs it and purposes it for good. So church... Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice, makes it their desire and their aim to sin. Because God's seed, that is probably His Word and the Holy Spirit using the Word. God's Word dwells here. The law is written on the heart. Desires have changed. God's seed is in him and he can't keep on sinning because God makes it distasteful and begins to push him to see the the deceptiveness of it and the pain of it. He can't keep on sinning because God is alive in his heart. So when you are walking with Jesus, you want to abide in him. And when you abide in him, it gives you fuller, a deeper experience of joy and experience of him. And then you pursue what is of Him, that is righteousness. But there's another thing that we begin to see. And we see it in chapter 3, verse 1, back to where we were. And John tells us, he tells us not only that God's love is amazing, that He would take sinners and have anything to do with them, but the fact that He erupts is in and of itself an evidence that God is at work in John. It is a standing in awe of God in a moment being overwhelmed by His presence. It's a filling up of the Holy Spirit that just almost takes you out of your body. It's a sense of emotional gladheartedness and wonder of God really does love me. He really does want something to do with me. And I really don't deserve it. That's how a Christian talks. This is the major difference between religion and a relationship with Jesus. Religion views it as a transaction. I do for God, then of course God does for me. The Christian doesn't have, of course, in his or her vocabulary. The Christian is in awe and stands in amazement that God would have anything to do with him or her at all. When you go to work, very few of you, I would imagine none of you, when you work a 40-hour a week job. And you go to collect that paycheck. At the end of your work week, you don't, when you receive that paycheck, say, Wow! You're such a good boss to give me this paycheck. No. You say, I work for it. Actually, it probably should be more. Right? There's this sense of, 
expectation of this is what I've done. The Christian doesn't operate that way. The Christian is characterized by wonder and amazement. Amazement that God would come and have anything to do with him or her at all. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now God, He found me. I was spiritually blind and now He's given me eyes to see. That's how a Christian talks. They talk with a sense of wonder and amazement that God would come in. Have you had these moments before? Have you had a sense of awe that has come over you before? That God really did come to you a sinner and pay it all so that you might get it all in Christ. Has that ever happened? I remember when I was in college. And I was in college and I was doing an Experiencing God Bible study. This was about, you know, 20 some odd years ago or whatever. No, I just had 20 year high school, so it would be 15 to 16 years ago. So, I'm there studying this, and that study pushed me into the Bible in ways that I had never been pushed before. And as I was sitting there on my bed, the Spirit of God came over me with such fervor, with such a sense of awareness, that I began to see for the first time how inadequate I was, and I began to see how precious God was, and how powerful His Word was. And as Tim Keller says, it's not that I got new information, it's that information became new. It's that lights began to click on. It's not that I gained a whole bunch more facts about God. It's that while sitting there over the Word of God, I began to experience Him in a way that I never had. And He made old things fresh and powerful and alive. And I began to fall on my knees with tears running down my face, confessing my sin before God and standing in worship that my God would love me. Have you had those moments? Friends, the Spirit of God, He blows where He wishes. It's not predictable. You can't go back to Carson Newman College in that dorm room and kneel at that bed with the Experiencing God book open and it's going to happen like that again. That's not how it works. If it was, I might have planted a church right there in that room or something because the Spirit of God was at work. You can't manipulate Him and control Him. But He is alive. And He desires to give you love for Him. And friends, it's not about an experience. It's about knowing Christ. But how can you grow in your awe and wonder? John has been really clear about that. He's been clear to say, abide in me. That's how you do it. You'll never get wet if you don't stand where He promises for it to rain. He won't tell you when it'll rain and how much it'll rain, but He promises His Holy Spirit will rain down on you in the Word. He also says His Spirit comes alive 
and begins to give you awe and wonder when you're in fellowship with one another. When you're with one another, dwelling as a family, listening to one another, serving one another, loving one another. He also says it happens when you're obeying Christ, when you're walking in His ways. When you have a guilty conscience and your heart is constantly trying to hide your sin, running from guilt and shame, and you, you are not thinking about God in those moments. And so, of course, it's harder to experience a fullness of His presence when your conscience is constantly seared with sin. But you can experience and enjoy God when you abide in Him, when you obey Him, when you fellowship with one another. I remember when I was here on a Sunday morning at TCC, and we began to sing a song called Glories of Calvary. I had sung that song tons of times before. But there was one Sunday when speaking of the cross, he says, where His boundless love conquered my boundless sin and mercy's arms were open wide. It hit me. It hit me of how boundless my sin is and how God runs to every one of those crevices with His limitless love and He forgives me and He dies for every one of those and He reigns me in and He calls me His and it's mercy upon mercy. It was just singing one morning and I was brought to deep affection. Friends, I have a fear. I have a fear that we have become so mental that we don't believe that God works that way anymore. That it's God's good pleasure to excite the heart with emotion. And more than just emotion, an affection that is rooted on truth. I'm afraid that we don't believe God works in revival type ways anymore. Maybe He'll work with a person here and a person there, but to corporately move over a people to where as a people we are broken in sin and we fall on our face and we see how unworthy we are and then our affection for Jesus just leaps out of our chest and we begin to pursue one another in love because of what Jesus has done for us. It is possible in our day. And He wants it. And oh, how many blessings we choose to forfeit because we don't kneel before His feet and experience Him and a fullness of joy in ways like we've never known. The follower of Jesus will not only abide in Him to get a fuller, lasting experience and grow in joy in Christ, but they will live a life of righteousness. And as they live those ways, God will break in in moments and you will have in varying degrees at varying times awe and wonder of Him. And when He gives you those eyes to see, you'll begin to see what life is really about. And that's where He takes us at the end. And your hope will move from hoping on riches and hoping on relationships to hoping in Christ. It'll move towards heaven. And that's why He says there at the end, it's a hope that looks forward. Verse 2, Beloved, 
We are God's children now. He wants you to be confident in that church. That's who He's made you to be by His love. But we know that when He appears, when He comes again, we will be like Him. That doesn't mean we will be all-knowing. It doesn't mean we will be all-powerful. He's God and we're not. But we will not have sin anymore. We will be perfect then. That's not what we are now. One more evidence that He understands that the children of God will sin. But they're not going to love it long term. They'll be miserable in it. And so He says, but on that day, what our hope is set on is that we will be like Him. Why? Why will we be like Him? It says, because we're going to see Him. We're going to see Him in the flesh. We're going to touch We're going to look at Him with our eyes. That's why abiding in Christ is so precious. It's the only way we can really grow to see Him until we really see Him. Is in the Word, among God's people. We see Him. I see Him when you love me. I see Him when I open up the Word and spend time there. But it's all pointing towards that day when we really see Him. And when we really see Him face to face, we will be like Him. We will have no more sin. There will be no more death. All sorrow will be taken away. And friends, it says in verse 3, And everyone who hopes in this way, who sets their affections there, purifies himself. Because that God you're hoping for, He's pure. That's why it's so beautiful when we sing. When we sing songs that point us forward, it's not natural for us to do that, right? To think forward. But the Christian, especially when sorrow comes, they look towards their real home. And when we sing, it only begins to invite us into that even more. To sing about that day when we will be with Him forever. This is the beauty of the Scriptures. And what He is saying in that moment, when your hope is set forward, God is doing a purifying work in you at that very moment. While you're singing those songs and believing that it's better to be with Him, He's actually purifying you in that moment. It's a supernatural, beautiful thing that God does in the hearts of His people. And so church, John wants... The people of God to be confident when they stand before Him on that last day because they've imperfectly abided in Christ, pursued righteousness. They have stood in wonder of their great God and their hope is forward more than it is on the uncertainty of the here and now. Let's pray. Father, we ask. We ask that in these moments... You would grip us. You would grip us with Your great love for us. That God, we would stand and say, Behold, this love is like a love from another planet, from another country. This love is like something we've never known. Until you came. 
And until you gripped our hearts and took over lives. Father, I pray right now for those who don't know Jesus. And I just ask, I ask that you would capture their affections now. And you would show them the futility of sin. And that they would turn and press deeper into Christ. Father, I ask that you would take your word and root it deep into the heart of all of us. And I pray that as we take this Lord's Supper together, it would only be a way that we can rejoice of how much you love your people. That you would give your Son, that we might trust in Him and have confidence before Him on that last day. So now, Lord, be near to us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.